Apple Music is here to make heading back to university a breeze this year with their epic special offer. If you're a university student and you sign up for Apple Music now, you'll get the first six months free. Yeah, you heard me right. Six months free. And wait for it. There's a little bit more. You'll also get a free subscription to Apple TV+. Plus. I mean, there's only so many times you can watch Parks and Rec, right? Get busy exploring over 70 million songs, all ad-free. Remember, this offer is for new subscribers only and only available to students. So verification will be required on sign-up. Even better, after your free period is over, your subscription will renew for $29.99 per month, which is a steal. This offer is valid until the 30th of April, 2021. So like, get off the couch and get busy listening. And welcome to Tex Talks. I am Tex, and today I am talking to a modern folk singer, songwriter, and environmental activist who has been crafting feel good folk pop for the last decade. Underpinned by a consistent work ethic, his high energy live shows and captivating discography has earned him a legion of fans all over the world, courtesy of his knack for translating life's challenges and fears into upbeat anthems. I am, of course, talking about Jeremy Hewitt, better known to all of us as Jeremy Loops. Jeremy, welcome to the show. <laughs> so, so we've we've done this a few times over the course of your career. Sit down and and shoot the breeze. But when I was thinking about how to kick this interview off, I really struggled because it really feels like just yesterday that you had that residency at that club upstairs in Kloof Street that no longer exists. I can't even remember the name and. I remember thinking how like consistent you were even then, like no matter if there were 10 people or if there were 10,000 people, you've always come to the party so professionally. Where did, where did you cultivate that mindset of professionalism from Jeremy? Cause it's not something that you're born with or were you? <laughs> yeah, I definitely was not born with it. I'm pretty sure of that. Um, and it was something we, I remember taking really seriously, like I wanted to make sure people had a, you know, a solid experience at a show of mine, no matter where it, I, I think it probably started with busking. If I'm honest, like when you went before I had those little shows and the name of the club you were thinking about is Rafiki's. Yes. Creepy little monkey. Will you stop following me? Who are you? The question is, who are you? And that yeah, really cool spot. It used to be kind of like the hangout that people would just gather at and they didn't actually do much music, but we kind of wangled it. The guy was a really cool owner and he allowed us to do these weekly shows there. But before I was doing those little club shows, I was really busking around at markets and wherever I could play and doing a lot of loop looping. And in that context, people don't come to watch you. You know, you have to kind of grab people's attention. So I got used to this feeling of needing to grab people's attention and it was one of the things that held us in good stead like as we moved into festivals and you have to kind of separate yourself from all the other bands on the lineup uh, and just yeah capture people's imagination I suppose and um, but yeah just always wanting to make sure I gave 110% myself and uh, and the band that I'm with like it's just it's the cornerstone of our performance I suppose we we don't let our personal stuff get in the way of the music 
And we certainly don't want to rock up. And, you know, just because one's having a bad day, you kind of take that out on a crowd or whatever it might be. Do you think that working on the yachts helped? Because I feel like people who tend to choose that life, even if it's just for like a year or two, they know that they're about to work harder than they've probably ever worked in their entire life. Like it's a conscious choice to work hard on a boat. Like maybe it's also a conscious choice to work hard on your music craft. It's definitely a conscious choice to work hard on your music. And I mean, I've, I've seen that throughout the years. There were loads of people that I used to ask for advice, like in the industry on the way up. And um, it very quickly turned around and they were kind of asking me for advice specifically because I took the business side um, of it so seriously. And I really just wanted to see it all thrive. You know, um, I didn't want to. I was also so grateful to have it, you know, like uh, I'd worked, like you say, I'd worked really hard on the yachts. Before that, I studied this business degree and I, got, I did my honors and I had to write a thesis. And I wasn't like a particularly, um, I wasn't, I wasn't a good student. Let's put it that way. I kind of got kicked out of schools on the way up. I was moving around a lot and I wasn't, um, how I managed my way through that business degree still kind of eludes me to this day. <laughs> It was really like my biggest feat. And I've worked so hard to do subjects like statistics and economics and law and financial maths. And I failed accounting twice and I got it on the third go round. And it was so painful to be doing that in my early 20s in, a, in an area that I like really didn't enjoy either. Like I had no, no love for a lot of that work I was doing, but I, I knew I needed to cultivate that kind of uh, – entrepreneurial spirit and understand those those business fundamentals it was just part of how i was geared i was so ready to work and that probably just also happens when you grow up in south africa and you have zero certainty about how you might uh, succeed in this country you Definitely. know like how you might provide for yourself one day and and create a life that you can believe in and i think i had really high aspirations about how i wanted to live and i was well aware that like not being prepared to graft was uh, you know, I wasn't going to get there easily. No, you had, you say you had high aspirations for how you want to live and then you choose to become a musician, um, <laughs> which in South Africa isn't necessarily the highest paid job and, and musicians have to slug it out for, for a very long time. I mean, like you did before you started to achieve all of this, this recognition around the world. Um, but where did you hone your musical talents? Did that happen while you were on the yachts or was there a period where you were studying where you were like, actually, screw this. You know what? I want to, I want to focus on music full time. Uh, I never had the guts to uh, focus on music full time while I was studying. I, that was where I really started learning music. And I, uh, I had a long drive. I was living in Komiki and studying at UCT every day. So I had this like hour long drive in the morning and hour long drive back. And so I used to like where people would strap CDs on their above, you know, like above your, um, like on the little sun visor, mm -hmm. you'd have a CD pouches. <laughs> I had like a CD pouch with a whole bunch of harmonicas in it. And I used to drive and beatbox to like anything that would come on the radio that I could try and beatbox to and play harmonica to it. And I basically just used those car trips as music lessons for myself. Um, and otherwise, I was a YouTube baby. You know, I was basically just instead of studying, r watching YouTube things. And, and I got, yeah. But yeah, it was definitely the yachts where I 
had way more time. All I did was work and um, I had so many nights to just sit with my music and, and try and figure out how to do it all. But to be honest, I, le- I suppose I, cr- I honed the craft the most after I actually started playing. Everything before then was just like learning and messing around. And uh, it was really once I was forced onto stage that I, I started learning a lot faster how it should all go. Now, before Text Talks, I had a radio show on an online station called Assembly Radio. I know that you know it well. Um, but Assembly Radio was an extension of the Assembly Club in Harrington Street for people mm. uh, listening who don't know the Assembly, who don't remember it. And my, co- my co-host on We've my been around. Oh, <laughs> I know, I know, right? Makes me sound so old, Jeremy. But my no, it's awesome. I'm celebrating that shit. You know, like it's epic to talk to you now all these years later and know that you've done so well for yourself and you continue to be one of the only stalwarts in this music journalism space in South Africa. I don't mean to interrupt you, but it's, no, man. It's, uh, it's just dawning on me now that this, uh, the fact that we're here talking pretty much 10 years down the line from when both of us were kind of starting out uh, is quite, quite beautiful. Yeah, you're right. You and I started more or less the same time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's crazy. But, but, I remember your your first gig. Well, I mean, I saw you, I saw you busking at the biscuit mall, and then I saw you at Rafiki's. But your first headline gig was mm. at the Assembly, and right. and the, the radio show that I had on Assembly Radio. My co-host was Matteo Moleko, who obviously is your musical cohort. And one day, yeah. I remember Mo messaged me, and he was like, "Okay, we're gonna play at the Assembly this weekend uh, for Green Pop's 1,000 tree planting celebration." Uh, will you interview Jeremy before we play? And I was like, yeah, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> sure. And I think up until that point, I'd interviewed you once before for a feature in your LMG magazine, which is also a magazine that I used to edit Yo. back in the... Yeah, no, now we're going all the way back. Um, but but I remember I remember interviewing you and I remember you being so excited because it was like one of your first headline gigs and like everything was so fresh and new. Yeah, I was tripping out. Yeah. I remember. <laughs> Do you, do you still feel that way when you step on stage? I mean, I know you haven't stepped on a stage in a while, but like yeah. when, when, when you do, is everything, is every new stage like shiny and new? Like, do you still get that rush from, from a gig like the first time that you played at the assembly? Yeah, the, well, I think the rush changes. Definitely it's changed. Um, but when you are, look, we, I've been really uh, lucky. We've, we've made amazing steps forward across yeah across the world but also just across this music business as i've grown and so the opportunities and the things that have been in front of me have escalated uh in step with my ability to keep up with um i suppose coming to terms with them you know like emotionally spiritually physically i used to be terrified of getting on stage like giddy with excitement but at the same time like nauseous with fear the first time i played kirstenbosch gardens i think i was nauseous for like two weeks before that show because there was just so much expectation so much that i like so much weight on my shoulders and i was so um ill prepared for a lot of it you know i wasn't a i'm not a musician that grew up singing in the mirror and like trying to just be like a pop star i was uh i was really someone who was studying like a business degree and had a much a totally different idea of what I might spend my life doing who stumbled into music in this 
quite organic way. And so a lot of those first performances were just harrowing as far as overcoming uh, performance fear and all the self-loathing that comes with laying your creativity bare for people to judge, especially when it was so, uh, yeah, I don't know, like there were so many holes in my uh, repertoire at that stage. You know, I I didn't really know much about songwriting. Uh, I was looping everything. So my show was like really Mm loop-based, which was kind of cool, but it meant a lot of my songs were relatively monotonous. It was very difficult writing my first album because I had to like take loop songs, which were using the same chords a lot of the time and actually learn how to write structured songs and uh, put pre-choruses and choruses and post-choruses and, you know, like intros and outros in. And all I'd done to date until that point was put like loops together. So, um, yeah, it was was really terrifying. And it doesn't – it didn't go away for years, that. But then as the stage – I think it was somewhere – I was explaining this to someone the other day. It was very distinctly for me uh, when I got to that level where we were playing 500 to 1,000-seater rooms – overseas when we started it was maybe on our third or fourth tour abroad where we started cracking like thousand seater rooms something changes when every night you have to hold the energy of us of a crowd that size like up until 500 people you still feel like a little unit it's like a smaller venue you can almost see everyone you can kind of hear and taste the, taste the vibe you know it's like mm-hmm. right there and then when it gets over a thousand people like it becomes a different beast to manage the the energy in the room and to keep that high level of performance that I'm all about. Uh, I found it a lot more difficult and I really had to, to kind of gear up. So I, I spent a lot of time learning about meditation in those years. I spent a lot of time uh, going on like kind of inner conquests of how can I enjoy this more and stop fearing it so much and how can I take like the intimate energy that I can create with a small amount of people and translate that to really big stages. Mm. And I would argue that that's what often separates like artists who can go on to become much bigger and much greater in a sense. They're generally the ones who figure that out. And the ones that don't are the ones that are slated for having these really bad live shows, which I don't think is always the case. Like Kings of Leon probably are a great band in a small room. Oh, my God. When you said that, that was literally the first band name that came into my mind. Really? Yeah, 100%. What a bad, terrible live. Oh, my God. So bad live. Yeah, see, and but the thing is, they probably weren't. They probably, I, I mean, I'm just, I don't know. Maybe they were. Maybe they were <laughs> terrible from the word go. They were not and good. And they just know how to write songs. But, uh I imagine that like most artists that get somewhere uh, learn to cultivate like a live thing to a point and beyond a certain point, it just becomes too nerve wracking and you just crumble under that pressure and you don't learn how to gear up. And I was kind of adamant to not be a number in that sense. And so I did a lot of, a lot of work on trying to figure out how to do it. And so I've got like lots of tricks, you know, now when I go and play big festivals, you know, last year or at least the year before, we started headlining some proper big festivals abroad, which was a big breakthrough for us. Mm-hmm. And playing main stages on on big festivals abroad was a whole new level of fear for me. And because a lot of, you know, it's not like playing a big festival here where the audience know you, they've been with you on your journey and they're excited to like sing old bangers with you. Um, internationally, a lot of the time I'm playing to audiences who don't know you that well and you really have to come out like swinging. 
and so yeah i i've got processes i suppose i've got tricks that allow me to sink into it and deal with it better and enjoy it more and not feel the fear as much uh, and really be able to experience the joy more as opposed to all the nerves what what's one of the processes unpack your your loop secrets for me um I suppose the main thing that I do again I was t- I was actually sharing this with someone the other day because they were saying that they suffered from such serious fear around performing. Um one of the things that really helps me is before big shows I I kind of now I used to be hyper unorganized and I would really thrive on the chaos and I would run onto stage like just chaotic and let that energy drive me. <laughs> And that is a really powerful um bunch of energy like you almost remember like interviewing me right in the beginning I was just full of all excitement. over the place I loved it all over the place Now what I do when I've got big shows or big terrifying things or even like when I'm heading into a writing session with a really like a big artist that I'm maybe a bit like uh, nervous about like how's this going to go um I just take time I suppose like I I take time to make sure I've got things in a row so in my live in the live performance i've got like a tech team now and i have a few like checks and balances with them that i make sure that they do um like clockwork so before the show they need to like make sure i've got my in ear pack and i've got my ears in and they test my microphone and my guitar so that i can hear it because obviously i don't come out for um sound checks anymore and a lot of artists on those bigger stages they don't check all that stuff they just walk out and trust that their tech team have mm-hmm. done their job mm-hmm. um it's not that i don't trust my tech team it's that i know that if i know my sound is working a little part of my neuro- neurotic uh like fear will be put to rest because i'll know the tech is already working so i do a lot of these checks from a technical point of view um before a show and what i like to do is finish that at least like 10 to 15 minutes before i go on I always like to go on a little bit late um just because I'm seldom ready to actually be on stage on time and I use that time to go and sit backstage with my microphone my harmonica in hand everything working my ears in so I can, and then I can't really hear much and I just switch my pack off so I can't hear much at all and then I just watch the crowd um and I sit and I watch them so that they can't see me but I can sit and just read the energy in the room and feel what it feels like cuz that's i think the other terrifying thing a lot of the time you come out at a new show and maybe the night before you played in the UK and then the next night you get on stage and you're in Switzerland or mm. in Germany and you think well we did the show last night so we're going to do more or less the same and you feel like you've got it sorted but you get there and it's a completely different energy a totally different group of people and and that throws you off and all of a sudden you're kind of maybe making mistakes mistakes or it's not going the way you want it to go so i found that really helps me is just to sit get the sus on the crowd and um and go out feeling like you already know what the energy in the room is like and you adapt on the spot kind of thing a lot of musicians that i've interviewed over the years you know they they talk about that one moment where they knew that things were going to change for them where they reached a, a turning point in their career and and Over the years I've spoken a lot about what I see as your turning point and I'm very very happy that you mentioned it just now you mentioned 
playing, playing Kirstenbosch for the first time in in 2013 alongside Holiday Murray. Oh, my God. Whoa. Can you meet R.I.P.? But that was such that a... good songs. That they had amazing songs. They were like darlings of MK for one point. But that right. was but that was such a that was such a special concert for so many reasons. I remember I even wrote a, a, a review on it afterwards, and and I remember how you just had everybody eating out of the palm of your hand, and I hadn't really seen anything like that from a young up and coming band or solo act up until that point. And apart from the the crazy anxiety that you mentioned, do you remember? Any other feeling around that gig leading up to it? Uh, sure. It's good to see you. Yeah, I mean, that Kirstenbosch, those shows, that first show there was definitely a big moment of knowing that things were changing. And and I think we sold it out. You know, I think that we sold out our yeah, Kirstenbosch shows from, I, I've played maybe six of them now. We are one of the real staples there because we always sell out and we sell out because our, I think our audience knows that they're going to get the best of us no matter what the situation is. You know, it could be pissing with rain and um, I'm going to make sure that we, we go all in. And I think that's, as an audience member, for me, that's what I've always liked the most when I go to shows, if I can see a band's there with you, you know, and I've been to shows where you feel like the band's not there mm. and I hate that feeling mm-hmm. and I want to throw stuff at them. I've been responsible for throwing things at bands. I threw a bottle at Jimmy Eat World once because they were supposed to me. And um, so I'm one of those like annoying fans when it comes to the way I consume music. And so I just always want to not be that guy. But And that, the, yeah, that curse marsh definitely defined like the next, the next step for us. But, to be honest, every year I have something like that that transpires where mm. I know I get a sneak peek around the door and I'm like, we're, we're moving in the right direction. And it seldom happens in isolation. It's always just this like constant trotting forward, one foot in front of the other. And then after a certain amount of time, something just gives and you see like a breakthrough, a little win. And you're like, oh, cool. We're, we're about to transition to another level now. And then you go back to the grind the next day and it feels slow again. You know? <laughs> I used to call you a, a one-man modern folk band, but I can't do that anymore because your band has grown so substantially over the last sure, years. Definitely not. I know. I mean, and like you guys are a force, Jeremy. You really are. And like how how long did it take you, well, all of you really, to be comfortable with the current iteration of Jeremy Loops as it is? We don't get to get comfortable. I mean, to be honest, now towards the end of last year when we were allowed to do a little bit of touring, we put a string of shows together and uh, we had to totally change it. Like there was no budget coming from the like promoters were all broke. Uh, Everyone just wanted to do it for the sake of doing it. And um, so we had we slimmed the whole thing down Um, and we changed the iteration and I didn't get to have the same tech team I would normally have. And, um, yeah, I, we, there's no, there is no stability in that. You know, the other thing is that we, I write new music and then, uh, we have to go through these processes of updating. Like I update the band with what's, what I'm writing, uh, we'll practice stuff, but we generally only do that in, in the lead up to a big tour. 
and um, a lot of the time I am still working primarily on my own on the music stuff um, and then we get together for these like powwows before we go on tours where mm -hmm. everyone gets this massive update and it's like really difficult for a short space of time as we get we try and figure out how to bring new songs into the same energy that the live show needs to be and um, and that's always a bit of a process but I've loved getting to know I mean I, I couldn't imagine a situation where one just plays solo anymore and it's not that I won't and I still actually really I have done solo shows in the last year that I really enjoyed um, but there's something about being with the band and having energy and more people on stage and uh, and we're all so comfortable with each other at the moment uh, which which is amazing I mean like you said Matteo Matteo Maleko has been been with me basically since day dot and he's always been in and around absolutely kills it live what a legend um mr sakatumi on the who is in the band he's played he used to be the, the drummer and now he's the bassist so he's like this multi-instrumentalist who moves around and in the last couple of years he's also started singing like he never sang oh my God. Like, i need i need backup harms i need someone to be doing harms sometimes and suck it to me. I think it's you. I know you've got a voice down there. And he had to like learn and upscale on the fly, but he's done it beautifully. Obviously, Devin Jones came into the mix on uh, on the drums, who was previously with bands like Plush and Hot Water and uh, Seventh Son is where I first saw Devin playing. So yeah, it's cool. We've got a, a really cool uh, group of guys. The last time we caught up, I think it was in May, May last year in the middle of winter and and at the like in the peak of lockdown and we were both moaning about how cold it was and i called you to talk specifically yeah, do, you, right. do, you remember, do you remember that yeah i was sitting right where i'm sitting now except there was basically like rain and frost on the window and you're like i'm wearing my mick uh, rick and morty socks that's right yeah <laughs> i'm pickle rick but i called you specifically to talk about um the news breaking of you working and writing a few songs with Ed Sheeran, but then also to talk about the intricacies of your new licensing deal with Universal Music Group South Africa as part of a global partnership with Decca Records in the UK and then Polydor in Germany. And there really has been a lot of things happening business-wise that have been brewing in your camp over the last few years. And I think apart from hard work, which I know, you know, we know that you're a hard worker. I know that you're a hard worker. What do you attribute your overseas success to, especially lately? Uh, I mean, just continuing to push forward, I think, is the biggest thing. People always say it in business and entrepreneurs are always well known for kind of, uh, you know, saying that that consistency is the basis of everything. But it really is the case. Consistency is exactly how we got to those levels, you know, and I think that what, what happened for a lot of South African bands who've tried to do what we've now done is they would go over for a, a tour and it would be difficult. It would cost a lot of money. You financially would get a little bit broken and scarred from the whole experience, not to mention you work like you, you tour in tour buses and it's like difficult and you sleep on, you know, couches and there's a lot of, uh, difficult stuff that goes into it all. But then at some stage uh, you come back to your home country and 
you get kind of comfortable and often a bit scared, I think is the way. I mean, I can only speak for myself. I used to be scared of going and touring again. And I think that's what happens to a lot of South African artists. They go, they get, they, it kind of goes all right, but they get their fingers a bit burned because it is tough. And they come back and they're like, I'm not sure if I want to go and do that again and play to rooms that are maybe not always full and people don't know your songs and the, the money doesn't make sense. And we, I, yeah, I was always opposed to that. I, I knew we needed to go back. It was planned into my thinking. My manager, Damon Forbes, has always had like a, a vision to be involved in breaking an, an, a South African act legitimately around the world. So we decided up front and I had to, you know, very much from my side agree that I was going to be ready to spend the majority of the money that we made in South Africa and anywhere pumping it back into um, the broader investment of yeah breaking internationally and going back even when it doesn't always make sense. And we continue to do that to this day. I just, I reinvest a lot of money into the career. I enjoy investing in it and spending towards those goals. I think that's probably the cornerstone of how it's all broken through in a, in a way. I mentioned that you've worked with everyone's favorite ginger, Ed Sheeran, but you've also worked with Simone Felice, who's worked with the Lumineers and Baffle Lashes, and you've also worked with Cam Blackwood, who's worked with Bastille and George Ezra. Who perhaps stands out from the people that you've written with or collaborated with over the years that have really pushed your, your, your musical boundaries, maybe allowed you to create something that you've never created before? Uh, I think all those people you mentioned would be good examples of that. Um, there was another guy I worked with a few years ago called Egg White. Uh, what was his real name? Francis. He did. A, he worked with Adele and a lot of her big hits. And he was this wildly eccentric dude. Um, I mean, his I name is Egg White. <laughs> Egg White. Uh, lovely guy, like family man. You go and work at his studio. It's at his home. And, um, but his whole family are there and he's very strict. It's like you arrive at a set time and I was an hour and a half late because I kind of got lost in London. And then I was decided I'd go for some lunch anyways. And I got there and he was like, yeah, cool, dude, if we're going to work together, don't rock up late ever again. Uh, I, when I say I finish at six, um, I really mean I finish at six. And so I'm going to be finishing at six today and it's okay. Don't worry about it. Just means we're going to have to work twice as fast and twice as hard right now. So I hope you're ready to go. And it was like an absolute whirlwind working with this guy. Um, so I think being pushed out of my boundaries has definitely happened from working with a lot of the guys internationally, because as much as I love the South African music scene and um, I'm a part of trying to push it forward, we don't have that sort of expertise here. We don't have the same mm -hmm. level of, of people. And, uh, when you have to pay for your flights and go over there and make yourself available and then get in these studios with, you know, just a year and a half ago, never mind the Ed Sheeran thing. I was in a studio working with a guy called Jonathan Kwambi, who's the guy who, uh, I don't know if, if your listeners will remember Finley Quay, but I was a huge Finley Quay fan. I don't know if you know, mm -hmm. know him. Didn't he tour South Africa? Yeah, he did yeah. in what was, uh, I think, considered also some of the worst live performances <laughs> ever recorded. 
Um, yeah, shame. He was, I think, quite a troubled soul, Finley. And um, Jonathan Kwame produced those that first record or that record that did really well and had all those big hits on it. And um, but I was there at that studio. It's called Rack Studios, and on the wall are the, all these beautiful like uh, gold EPs and LPs of records that have been made at the studio. Uh, it, you really feel like you're part of music history when you're there making music. And that pressure alone is like an interesting pressure to hold. And it definitely translates into kind of pushing you forward and also allowing you to feel like, cool, I'm, I'm here for a reason. Let me not doubt myself. And let me get in there and like work magic and make magic and not be afraid to know that I've got it, got it in me. Um, but I was in the bathrooms at Rack Studios. I went for like a toilet break somewhere halfway through the day, we were kind of bashing our head against the wall, trying to figure out this, this bridge. And I went for a break and I bumped into what's the guy's name from the Rolling Stones with the, I know they've all got wild hair. Is it, uh, is one of them called Ronnie, Ronnie Wood? Ronnie Wood. Yeah. The Ronnie Wood. Mm -hmm. It was him. Right. And I, he hadn't closed the bathroom stall and I walked into his like, into the toilet and like bumped into the back of him. And I was like, Oh, sorry. And he was like, Oh, sorry, mate. I'm in here. And I was like, that's fine. But I recognized him and I was like, geez, that guy looks familiar. I don't know why he looks like definitely like someone I know. And, but I couldn't piece it together because I was focusing on my own thing. So I washed my hands and I walked back up and I got to the top of the stairs and there was Keith Richards smoking a cigarette indoors uh, with Mick Jagger. And they were having a conversation at the top of the stairwell waiting for Ronnie Wood. And I just was like, hey, and they were like, hey. And I kind of kept walking. I got back to the studio and I said to Jonathan, I was like, why didn't you fucking tell me that the Rolling Stones are here? And he's like, I didn't want you to freak out or anything. And I was like, well, it would be nice just to know. And he's like, yeah, haven't you noticed there's no one in the building? We we closed the whole like studios down for them. It's just that because you came all the way from South Africa, we couldn't cancel your session. So um we had to run it with you. So that's why you're the only artist here other than them. Uh, but I really, I went home that night and we, we wrote a beautiful song that day, which is going to be on my next record. And I remember just thinking, this is cool. Like that was a cool experience, whatever that was. Maybe I should have said hi to them. And then I was like, no, nah, it's nice that I didn't say hi to them. I mean, I did, but I didn't like try and talk to them. I'm telling you now, if you ever bump into them again, Ronnie Wood's probably going to be like, you're that South African that was in the recording studio when we were supposed to lock it down and have it to ourselves. <laughs> yeah. They were probably offended that they saw me there in the first place. Yeah. And when I, when I left the studio, there were all these like cars parked outside, like dark tinted window cars, like no doubt some of their security personnel and, and broader team. And I was like, how did I not notice any of this when I arrived here? I kind of just came in in my own world with my headphones on, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. You were probably so wide-eyed at the fact that you were there. You know, like, I'm just so happy to be here. <laughs> that you, didn't, you weren't paying attention to anything. No, I don't think I was wide-eyed to be there. I've worked out of that studio a few times. I think I was like, this is my other home. Like, I'm, I'm totally supposed ah, to be Ah, so here. you were comfortable. I was comfortable, yeah. And then it was like they bumping into them just felt like another day in the office, but in a really like ludicrous way. And it was the same working with Ed Sheeran, you know, like a, I had a lot of build up about what it would be like to work with him, but then he was just a regular dude and we just got in and, and like gelled really well musically and it was easy. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. It was not as surreal as one maybe 
would imagine it was when you start to feel like you're actually supposed to be in those places. You know, even though you've been stuck at home, you've still been very busy. You've been releasing music. You directed your first music video. Congratulations, by the way. It's very cool. Um, you, you, you played live streams in your home. You also started the Big Food Drive, which was a huge success. Uh, which was a crowdfunded campaign uh, to send food to some of our neediest communities during lockdown. Um, and I know that you're sitting on an album. So, so what... I mean, obviously, COVID derailed your plans to tour and your your year last year was going to be one of your biggest touring years yet. So, I mean, now we're two months into 2021. What, how is the year shaping up for you? What is it starting to look like? I don't know at all. I've got no, I mean, we, I don't know. I generally, we generally have a plan. Um, we're a pretty forward-thinking band and we always, uh, you know, my whole team are really generally thinking quite clearly about what we want to do and what our plans are and how it relates to everything that especially I'm spending my energy on and just trying to be efficient with my time. But everything's changed, you know, like um, no one knows. At the highest levels, people don't know. My agent, John Ollier in London, is one of the, best agents in the world, I would argue. He's absolutely got his finger on the pulse and he's in all the conversations and he's got other big artists that he has to worry about as well. And he was just saying to me the other day, he has no idea. He says, and no one can predict what what's going on and where it's all supposed to go. So yes, we've got plans to release an album. I would have loved my album to come last year already, but it, it just hasn't made sense to release albums in this uh kind of climate and also when I can't go and tour it you know I'm a I'm a touring artist mm -hmm. in my heart and it feels so odd even to release these songs that I've been releasing and not be able to reinforce them live when we got to play a few shows when there was like when the lockdown ended last year and kind of uh, they started allowing small shows to happen it was mind-blowing for me to be able to play Mortal Man which was the mm -hmm. first single we released and for the first time, like nine months later, hear how much people knew that song. Because I, I had no idea. Normally, you get a very clear picture, like the audience either know the song or don't know the song. Um, and they, everyone knew Mortal Man word for word. And it was so beautiful to – and I really re realized then, I was like, this is why I can't release this third album until I can go and tour because this is the magic. Like – seeing that people know the song, knowing it means something to them, and then singing it in communion with them, uh, as opposed to just like dropping the single and once it's done its thing on streaming, you move on to the next one and take another shot. So I don't know. We have tours booked. We've got ven venues penciled all around the world, which isn't easy even in this, like either, just even holding dates. But whether those dates happen, we don't know. How that affects our album rollout, we don't know. And for now, I'm just trying to find ways to continue to be productive as an artist and write songs. And even that hasn't been easy. You know, some, some days I have loads of inspiration. Other days I'm literally just cruising around the house in my underwear, watering the garden, hanging out with my dog. And, uh, yeah, telling myself that I'll write some songs, but not doing that. And I think that's probably the case for a lot of people around the world right now as they 
have their lives more or less derailed and destroyed and are trying to figure out what's next. I don't think anyone really knows. No, I think all we can do is just look on the bright side, at least try. Yeah, for sure. I think there's some uh, blind, someone wrote it to me the other day. They were like blind positivity, like (laughs) just moving forward blindly (laughs) with a smile on one's face, which sounded totally delirious as well. I was like, well, that's also not how I want to be. So I think I've been also mixing it up. Like you say, uh, we did the big food drive. We've continued with the big food drive. We've been building this beautiful big vegetable garden in Masipumalele, which is finished. It's having its first harvest uh, this month. It's just epic and abundant. And so trying to also put my energy into things that I can control Mm -hmm. and, um, and not worry so much about the things that are the question marks. So, yeah, I suppose that's what I'm trying to do. So talk to me about your latest single, Till I Found You, because last I saw it's doing incredibly well in Europe. Uh, yes, it is. It's been a, it's been a joy, that song. Um, what do you want to know about it? Uh, tell me about its inception. Where did you write it? Did you write it while you were in lockdown? That song was not written in lockdown. It was written just before uh, on my last trip to the UK. And I actually was with Matteo Maleko. He flew out for some of those writing sessions as well. So he was involved in the writing of that song, as well as a guy called Jake Gosling. And um, yeah, man, that's it's a special song for me. You know, it's the inception was was really just around this this feeling um the song the lyrics say like uh, steam train souls from the city we loan our bones from the grave meaning like we we're all here on borrowed time in a way um suppose i've never cared much but who could be saved like how do you save yourself in the world like this how do we all do that work and get to the point where we're okay um, suppose I never cared much, but who could be saved? Beware the wolves and snakes wrapped up tight beneath the shade. Uh, that just refers to like all the pitfalls, like the common pitfalls hiding in plain sight that you see so many of the people you love falling into, myself included. Um, just a lonely one along the way out and I have no name. You know, I'm a, I'm a nameless person in time. So take these things away from me, the useless things, that, the useless bits I'll never need. Uh, starve my breath so I'll be free. Uh, very much an idea of like shedding all the layers and unnecessary bullshit in our lives to just be somewhat free, as free as one can be uh, in a time and place like this. So that song, although it has this chorus, which is like just really catchy and uh, I won't stop until I found you, which sounds like a traditional love song. Uh, it, it was a lot more from an inception point of view. It was really about that turning inward, finding oneself, I won't stop until I find some sort of sanctity and safe place to operate from. And um, yeah, it's been beautiful. That song has been doing all sorts of things out there in the world. It's, um, it's done well on South African radio, but it's done amazingly in Germany specifically. Like uh, we entered the top 300 on the radio charts there, which was a big, it's always an exciting thing when you hit the top 300 in Germany, because it just means you're like getting that radio play to a level and then we've just been watching it climb slowly up and currently it's top 50 we are now i think last i saw we were at place number 50 which was 
is ridiculous. And so on the back of that success, it's starting to open up into Switzerland and Austria. And we've hired some people in like weird places that we've never worked <laughs> like Russia and Iceland. So um, yeah, it's been beautiful. That song's finding another life of its own. I saw that you also released a remix of Till I Found You by a Berlin-based producer duo called Two Colors, because I can imagine that because it's doing so well in Germany, that opportunity presented itself to you, which is also really interesting. Yeah, that's uh, not my style of music. <laughs> um, not my. It, it, it's weird. It's like I'm heavily conflicted about remixes because I don't live in the electronic music space at all. So I always find myself, uh, yeah, just like, I don't know, moaning at the remixes. Can they maybe make this list of changes? And they're just like, no, like that's, this is our remix of your song. It's not your place to tell us all these things. And it's normally in the beginning, they're cool, but then I overstep all the boundaries. Um, that yeah, two colors are massive German, uh, remix duo. Uh, predominantly like hard house music, like German techno all the way. And um, yeah, that's that went out a few days ago and I think is doing its thing. I haven't actually been checking up on it too much, but um, yeah, definitely going to be a few remixes coming out. There's one remix coming out for the song by a band, uh, well, a duo in France called Montmartre, who did this really famous Bob, uh, Bob Marley remix that i loved and so i'm really excited about that one as well it's coming up in the next few weeks well jeremy i just wanted to say thank you very much for joining me on text talks today i'm i'm very happy that i could finally pin you down to do this have a nice day guys thanks for the time you too my friend i'll chat to you soon shout out to jeremy loops for joining me in studio Thank you for joining us for another episode of Text Talks. Be sure to check out texttalks.com for more episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or listen to Text Talks on all good streaming platforms. Also, a huge shout out to Tom's, the only music store, for being the most incredible technical supplier. From myself, Tex, our producers, Jonathan Engs and Matthew Lewitz, and our research assistant, Al Clapper, catch you on the flip side.